Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. Um, today's guest, uh, I'm super excited to. I'd recently just started reading his articles, um, but I knew who he was. Super, super smart guy. He's going to be on again in the future. Um, truly a gentleman who, when I was talking to him, I'm like, man, I hope this guy doesn't think I'm stupid. But uh, I like to think I'm, I'm smarter than the average bear, but this gentleman is definitely... Uh, well-read, well-thought-out, very intelligent person. He is the chief liberty officer and founder of Liberty.me, uh, the global liberty community with advanced social and publishing features. He is also the c director of digital development for the Foundation for Economic Education, executive editor of Laissez-Faire Books, research fellow at the Action Institute, policy advisor of the Heartland Institute, founder of the Cryptocurrency Conference, member of the editorial board of the Mullinary Review and the author of five books. He's written 150 introductions to books and many thousands of articles appearing in the scholarly and popular press. And his new book is Bit by Bit, How P2P is Freeing the World. Um, so, and with that being said, uh, you know, my guest's name is Jeffrey A. Tucker. Um, had a great time talking to him. Uh, I was kind of nervous at first, so I kind of mess up the intro and do some other stuff. But luckily, he was pretty gracious and stayed talking to me. And him and I talk. We surprisingly, we don't just talk about liberty. We actually talk quite a bit about art and the things we like about art. And um, because I think in reality, he agreed with me that uh, a lot of freedom actually comes from art. So anyways, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Sample Hour. Um, give me some some love on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else. Uh, also, do not forget we are a an affiliate for profit. Why can't I speak English for profitable for profitable urban farmer? So if you look at the right hand side, you'll actually see two ads, and that's because I use AdBlock. And I'd like to think most of my listeners use AdBlock because it's great. It removes ads. So there's, there's, there, you'll see two links for uh, Curtis Stones um, and Luke Callahan's Urban Farming Course. Guys, I tell you what, if you're looking to you know, start an urban homestead or just really, just really look to make money. I mean, so a lot of times you know, we, we talk about homesteading and we talk about... Um, you know, sustainability, becoming resilient, but you need to have money to kind of have that pay for itself. And I feel like Curtis does a great job of helping you develop cash flow systems off of annuals. And um, and then, you know, with the annuals, you can use that money to maintain your homestead while you're waiting on your perennials to develop. Because most things like fruit bushes and nut trees and all that stuff, it's great. But it takes a really long time for that stuff to start producing food. So in the meantime, you need to have stuff that's that you can kick through. And Curtis, you know, instead of you going out there figuring out how to do this stuff, with Curtis's course, it, it's a how-to on the business end. It's a how-to on the growing food end. So, I mean, everything you need, he's, a, you know, an anarchopreneur, much like myself. Um, and, you know, I just mad respect uh i've been taking this course guys got the micro bean micro greens business started in the basement and i'm looking forward to you know getting these these relationships developed with these 
chefs in the local area and uh tell you what guys just really check it out um even if you're just looking to do it part-time i know if you listen to permaculture voices diego footer says to do it full you know if you're looking to do full-time but i mean look if you could do this on a part-time basis and just pay for your mortgage through you know sales of microgreens however i i think it's it's definitely well worth it so anyways guys with that being said please enjoy jeffrey tucker He's going to be on again, hopefully, in the next few months. Um, check out his work. Read his books. Um, Nathan Frazier, highly recommended. Jeffrey Tucker to me. And actually, so did Curtis Stone. So anyways, Jeffrey, thank you so much for recording this podcast with me. And everyone, I hope you enjoy the show. Robert Johnson, the Delta Blues. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. I am honored to have this guest here. I've been uh, really going into more the, as you listeners know, just more into the freedom and becoming an actualized anarchist of sorts. And really, as Nathan Frazier and I like to say, anarchopreneur. And um, this gentleman, I just really started to become familiar with his work. And it sounds kind of silly being in the liberty movement because he's, he's quite the figure in the liberty movement. Um, he serves right now as the CEO of Liberty.me. Um, he's a, but I've written. He's an author. Um, I've written. I've, I've read. I don't know why I couldn't say that word, Jeffrey. I've read many of his articles. Um, about to buy his books and really dive in. I suggest you guys do too. But you can find his work at www.jeffreytucker.me.com or .me, not .com. What is wrong with me, Jeffrey? Um, and you can find all of his other websites and all of his other work that he's going there. But Mr. Tucker, thanks for joining me on the show today. Sorry for my stumbling introduction there. That was not oh. eloquent at all. <laughs> no, I, should, I should add that my, my primary gig, in addition to CLO of Liberty.me and, and Acton and, uh, I don't know, whatever else, Factum, is as the Director of Digital Development for the Foundation for Economic Education. And I'm, I'm excited about this gig because... Fee was founded in 1946, like right after World War II, as really America's first sort of libertarian, liberal libertarian free market think tank. And, you know, it's been through its ups and downs, but at the very heart of it is a kind of theory of freedom and a strategic outlook that I really identify with. I'm a big fan of Leonard Reed's writings from the past. Henry Hazlitt was there. They rescued Mises. They were the reason Human Action, Human Action was published. Mises' great book from 1949. So, so the, you know, Chodorov, Frank Chodorov, one of my favorite thinkers, was editor of the Freeman. You know, so it's it's just such such a wonderful institution and I'm I'm happy to be associated with it and and entrusted with the job of kind of rebuilding their digital real estate and making it uh, you know, epic. So that's pretty awesome. But you've been um you've been doing entrepreneurship type work as well multiple times. I heard a, a, a good podcast with um I believe it was with you and Jake DeSillis talking about entrepreneurship. 
Um, just oh, yeah, yeah. you were talking about how a lot of people see a problem in society and through the eyes of an entrepreneur, it's really an opportunity. And like that kind of really stuck out in my head because I mean, I'm in Ohio here and, you know, a lot of the older, like the baby boomers and even Generation Xers are really just talking about there's jobs, no jobs. I mean, the factories are leaving. Jeep just announced they're pulling the Cherokees out of Toledo. Um, I'm actually in the heart of Ohio where our economy is actually pretty well in Columbus. But I mean, Ohio is a very industrial state and that's why it's such a it's always such a political thing. We have all these crazy political ads during this time of the year. And uh, thankfully, I don't watch TV anymore, but um, not that I'm better than anybody else. I just don't I try to stay busy. But, uh, you know, something that that really kind of stuck out in my head. And um, I mean, do you think like and I think like for me, anarchism and, and entrepreneurship really go hand in hand. Um, and it seems like the more successful people are in the business world, they might not be as outspoken about anarchism, but I feel like they're kind of. They're kind of uh, closet anarchists in the sense that, you know, they try to do their best to pay the, the government as little as possible. Um, everything, I mean, and, and I think, too, just the entrepreneurial spirit in general, I think, is very, um, you know, it's, it's very freedom driven. Um, would you like to add it or kind of branch upon that, Jeffrey? Yeah, sure. I mean, to some extent, it's not possible to be an entrepreneur without having a, a kind of underlying mental intellectual template of anarchism. You have to believe that you're free to to act and to make a speculation on the future, and you have to believe that you can make a difference and 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 do so without permission of the central planners. I mean, the thing about government is that it always it's always sort of status quo oriented. It only regulates what already exists, and and government doesn't really imagine anything that doesn't exist. It doesn't imagine new technology, doesn't imagine new new forms of efficiency, new ways of doing things. It's always about regulating the status quo. I mean, it's sort of the essence of the state. It can only force what it already knows. Entrepreneurship is about discovering the unknown. So they really, government and entrepreneurship are sort of the opposites. So, so I think there's a sense of which every, every act of innovation, every act of entrepreneurship is, is an embrace of, of a kind of presumption of the possibility of order without authority. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think for me, like, I'm, I'm not quite, you know, I'm not really, I haven't walked away from my job yet in the sense uh, I plan. I have a plan to do it, but I, I mean, for me, like it's, like it's, it's. I don't like, like what. I think for me, entrepreneurship is a way, like, to actually. It for me, it seemed like the the best vehicle to actually make a difference as well. Um, and I think you know, one thing that I did for a while. Sure, a lot better than politics. Yeah. Absolutely, and one thing I did for a while, um, personally, is just to kind of give you a background of my personal past of. It was, you know, I used to just complain. I felt like I just complained all the time about what I didn't like and how things needed to change, but I, I wasn't actually doing anything. I wasn't actually getting out there and doing anything to make a difference. And um, so, I, I, I mean, for me, you know, entrepreneurship was pretty much through, like, trying different things and failing, um, but I still, like, would learn things. It was just, like, for me, it was just a natural evolution to become, you know, a libertarian and then from there become... Uh, you know, I, somebody, uh, my friend Curtis Stone said to me that an anarchist is, is just a libertarian that's fully realized. 
what what it's like a fully realized uh, libertarian, I guess. And uh, and I and I hundred percent agree. Um, and uh, so I think for me, you know, it, it's just been just a natural progression. Um, and just to kind of give a background just for my listeners that might not know, how did how did you come to to realize that you were an anarchist? Were you always kind of hated government, didn't really like people telling you what to do or what? No, no, it was more of an intellectual conversion. I, uh, you know, I, I had to grapple with the whole subject of, of socialism and central planning in college like I think everybody does. You know, you have professors that have big ideas on how we're going to use government to improve the world and I gradually realized that they were wrong. Uh, so having rejected the ex- extreme sort of socialist, you know, leftist perspective on government, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, what is the role of government and then what is the contribution that government makes? And I, I just sort of gradually became ever more realistic about it. You know, a lot of people will sort of make the stop at, at some mythical limited government position, like, well, I only favor a government that enforces property rights and administers justice and that sort of thing. And that's sustainable until you realize that government actually violates property rights and doesn't administer justice and instead of stopping criminality actually you know, creates criminality as, as a source of its revenue and its client base. And actually, government agents themselves, once you strip away the veneer of legality, are basically engaged in, in criminality. So, yeah. um, and, and for me, I, I guess then, I, I think I might have been, I think, thinking back at it, I'm, you know, it's a, it's a slow change that happens in, in your mind. Um, it's one thing to sort of, sort of um, discover that you hate the state and you think it's, you know, on net, destructive and that sort of thing. But something else to finally embrace the, the vision of the possibility of order emerging in the, within the world in absence of any kind of imposition or centralized structure. And that took me, I guess, a long time to kind of come around to. So I think I'd come around to kind of a moral anarchism or a philosophical anarchism uh, before, it's like several years before I finally embraced what I consider now to be a very practical anarchism, which is that to the extent there is any order, civilization, beauty, love, anything that makes life grand in the world, it is a consequence of an already existing anarchist structure. And that what seems to us to be the state, you know, that, that, that people believe is holding the world together, is not actually doing that at all. So it was at that point when I began to sort of observe anarchism all around me, you know, at the restaurant, on the streets, um, at, the, at the shopping mall, and, and the sheer chaos of, of people deciding where they're going to live, who they're going to marry, where, you know, uh, um, what kind of home they're going to get, what kind of job they're going to take. When I began to observe that, what kind of religion they're going to adopt, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. When I began to observe that, I realized, oh my God, you know, the whole world is beautifully chaotic and that's why it's so wonderful. And it was at that point that I just realized, well, look, really the state doesn't do anything that society can't do for itself day to day. And that, I think, was the source of my, my uh, switch. And I'd never went back. Now, that makes a ton of sense because, I mean, just even to think about our I mean, if you think about the, the government formed, I mean, just in pretty much what you're just saying is the government really formed out of anarchism. It formed out of chaos in, the, in that sense. And 
And it really is interesting to think about the way that people allow this kind of illusions to kind of tell them. I mean, not illusions, but in reality, it is kind of like an illusion. Or, or to me, I always say it's, you know, it's, it's magic. Like somebody put some words on paper and they wave a gavel, wooden gavel, and there you go. It's a law. You got to live by that or we're going to put you in a cage. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting, though, I, I think just from the, the point of how you came to anarchism, it, it sounds a lot different than like a lot of people. I think they come out of anger. But for you, it sounded like you actually came to that from a position of, of love, if that makes sense. No, yeah, I just wanted to, you want to know what makes life good, you know, what makes life beautiful. Because life is sort of volatile. I mean, not everything is wonderful, but, but there are moments when you fall in love with the experience of new ideas, when you embrace a new technology, you meet somebody fresh and wonderful who gives you a new idea, you know, where you experience a certain security and, and beauty and love in your life, you know, when the moments of great happiness... And, and when you think about all those things in your own life, you, you come to realize that they all stem from your own choices and other people's own choices cooperating sort of uh, magically almost, you know, uh, in, in a sphere in which uh, volition is primary. And, and then you think of sort of the most miserable things you experience and, and, and you know, your time at the DMV, your experience at the post office, you know, paying your taxes, getting audited. You know, getting stopped by the police, uh, you know, uh, you know, arrested for a DWI you didn't deserve, and so on. I mean, the state, the state imposes so much misery. They say nothing of gulags and gas chambers, and uh, famines, um, and and nuclear war, and so on. The, the state is such a source of misery in the world. Um, it sounds like, but to me, it's for me, it's like most of that misery comes from bureaucracy. It comes through like the. I mean, there's, there's, there's like, there's other things that I think just like we used to the gulags and everything, but like the post office, the, the BMV, the, 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 everything it deals with all this paperwork and all this, this process that you have to, to deal with when it comes to dealing with the state or even opening up a business, like in a state, like you have to, I, I mean, when I just, I just filed like my first legal LLC and, um, it was like such a pain, and then it's and it, like we don't have any employees. And the first letter I get from my business is the state immediately telling me that I owe them money. And I'm like, I don't have employees. Why do you say I owe you money? Like, I have to call you now and deal with you. And and it's um and it's like just the it's it's like it's not just a bureaucracy, but it's like the um the uh, inefficiency as well. Um, I mean, it's terrible. It doesn't do. I mean, it's the state is denied access to the information that that markets themselves are generating generating on a daily basis and the state is sort of living off old old information around the world i mean it's very interesting to me we think about the state how it you know its laws and its regulations some of which are you know 150 years old um the, the only world that they really have to regulate is first of all this physical world and we live in a digital age the second yeah, yeah. thing is that you know they're regulating a world a world that's 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 of the of the past you know the the already known information but the true job of society and the job of all of us in our lives is to work on making tomorrow a little bit better than today the state is sort of pushing in the opposite direction yeah that makes a ton of sense. To yeah, think and about in that it. sense, it's completely it's completely different from markets. You know, I mean, markets and and the social order generally 
are, are all about sort of grappling with an uncertain future in a way that makes the best approximation of future conditions, you know, giving the ongoing sort of chaotic change of, of life of billions of people interacting with each other and um, trying to find new and ever better ways of getting to where we want to be, which is, you know, healthy, prosperous, uh, flourishing, and so on. And it does this by a kind of process of, you know, establishing institutions that, that extract informa information bits as, as they're revealed in the course of Norman, uh, normal human interaction and institutionalizing those in, in systems like uh, um, prices and, and uh, stock markets, uh, norms and manners that we all obey. I mean, the, you know, life is difficult. It, it really is amounts to sort of walking through a, 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 an unlit castle and, and finding finding lights on the wall and turning turning them on and then proceeding forward. I mean, that's sort of the essence of what life is. It's, it's not a utopia. It's always an uncertain process of grappling our way forward. And, then, and the question is, I've, the question I would ask is, what does the state contribute to this great project? And I can't think of a thing. No. The state doesn't know anything that the social order isn't already know. And the social order has an advantage in the sense that it's always trying to discover new information. The state is only about imposing its old failed plans. I mean, that's a, sort of, to me, a good summary of what government is all about. Do you think, because um, you were just saying, like, kind of, because the state was kind of formed in, in like a utopian sense, like, do you think just the idea of utopia is, is really just kind of a, uh, an illusion in a sense? Well, I think, I think the best of all possible worlds we can create through allowing maximum amounts of freedom. And, and to that extent, you know, that is our utopia, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, that doesn't mean there's going to be infinite abundance and never we will be, but we can. We can always get better, you know. Absolutely. I don't agree with these people who say that you know we're that uh, you know we're growing too fast or we're, or we're developing too much or that you know we're too prosperous. And we're like, there's many sort of of the sort of green aristocracy on the on the left that thinks that we you know we're all just living too decadently and you know we need to cut it out. I, I don't believe any of that. I mean, I, would, I, I mean, part of the tragedy of the state is that it pillages so much of the wealth of society that it would otherwise be going to, to brilliant productive uses and investments and economic growth and, and that sort of thing. I mean, almost everything the government does uh, injures economic growth from stopping job creation through minimum wages or denying uh, uh, people their, their highest value by allowing um, maximum amounts of open borders and, and immigration. Or um, you know protectionism makes forces consumers pay more money, and then you know the whole tax state, the welfare state, the regulatory state, and wars for God's sake, you know. So it's it's all just it's all just horrible. The state is such a costly, costly mistake. I, I think in our times, you know, we're more we should be more aware of that than we ever have been. We were living through the greatest technological revolution since the industrial revolution of the 18th century, and yet we're experiencing economic growth that is absolutely pathetic, you know, just 1, 2, and 3 percent, barely keeping up with the increase in the population. And as a matter of fact, we're sort of falling in, in um, wealth creation year by year, and we have been for, you know, probably six years. And it's, it's tragic. And, and people need to ask the question, like, what, what has gone wrong, you know? 
and 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 what's gone wrong is that we've we've erected this gigantic leviathan that's just sucking the life out of our economy and our, and and really truncating our ability to manage our own social order and, and make the world a better place. And it's infuriating. It's in, it's unjust. It's evil. Um, but like you said, rather than get mad about it, you know, I think our best solution really is just try to outsmart uh, the system, which we are doing more and more every day. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I think um, even just just do something that is like an act is, a, is like a... a like one thing that like really kind of changed the way I and it took me a while to actually put it into action was um, watching Cody R. Wilson with Glenn Beck and when he he created uh, his 3D gun and I've talked about this a lot recently on podcasts but it really is kind of sticking with me is he pointed at it and to Glenn Beck and he said this is a political act like this is me this is actual politics and and the reason why I say that is I I recently started growing food and really start getting into urban farming and i feel like you know it's 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 the only cause i've been in sales for almost 10 years and mainly selling technology like uh uh cell phones and um just telecom in general um and it's it's a really really kind of soul-sucking work in a sense because it's so cutthroat sometimes but um the growing food and like just actually doing that and then bringing it to the farmer's market and seeing like what changes that does on multiple levels for community and it's and it's like and it's and it's like and growing food for some reason is a very really kind of anarchist act in the sense that you're 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 providing for yourself or you're showing that you're resilient so that you don't you're removing a dependency and um and then i think you know when you add on to on top of that you know the interactions that you can make with the farmers market and just really interlocking with other people in your community that are that are like-minded like yourself that want to make changes i think is a powerful thing so i think you know oh i think it's so awesome you know i mean and it's it's not as if you're pretending as if you could grow all your own food or be no uh, not at that point no i mean nobody you know i mean probably nobody ever could but but that's not the point i mean i i kind of get your your what you're saying i mean to have an experience of of growing food that you actually consume is is it feels as if you're at least part of the production structure and it's something you can control yourself. Yeah. And, and, it, and it gives you a, a, a hint of the possibility of, of, of thriving without some, you know, independent, some, uh, you know, external institution uh, having made it possible for you. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, I think it does. It does. It's hard to put your finger on it, but I understand... Uh, what you mean? Uh, it, it inspires this sort of internal reflection on the possibility of your own independence. Yeah, and and I think it's 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 even in like so pretty much. I felt pretty good because most of the summer, just from going to the farmers market, I had uh, vegetables that we had in um, that we we just couldn't sell and we couldn't eat it all for that week. So we could trade with other people who had other vegetables that we wanted. And the only thing I, I really didn't that I that I didn't get from uh, going there was my meat so I felt pretty good about that so it wasn't just that I, I could I, I, I wasn't growing enough food for myself but I did have food for me or some of my you know people that we all kind of work in this co-op that we could trade amongst each other but then also trade with other people and I think it was just kind of getting back to you know just that just just having that relationship with other people whether it be bartering or or anything else like that and I think you know and it, 
and I think that's what's really neat about things like like Bitcoin is it's like it's a it's a it's really and you're really into into Bitcoin and you're really um, you have this awesome picture on your website of this uh, half naked girl all painted up in Bitcoin um, with you. <laughs> <laughs> that's gotten me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> hey, it's freedom. And uh, and and so uh, but anyways, in, and, you know, and I don't want to jump too much, but I think, you know, really what's what's powerful about Bitcoin and other currencies, alternative currencies, is that um, it, it really allows money to be what money is. And that's and to me, money is, is an idea and it's, it's like a mutual understanding of that. We both agree that this has value. So you can use this as value versus the state or the government telling you this is what you have to use or else. Um, and, and so I, I, and I'd like to hear you talk just for my listeners more about Bitcoin. I haven't, I've had a couple people on to talk about it, but I don't think anybody that could probably explain it quite as well as you. Um, mm. and I think people have an idea of it, but, but the, mainly the importance and the value of it. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's so interesting to me that people these just days just take it for granted that, oh, sure, um, here's the money that's sort of for the internet that works peer to peer. And, uh, you know, it holds its value and you know, it can be used without uh, relying on central banks and it's not a government creation, that sort of thing. And people are weirdly nonchalant about it. Uh, I can't quite get over the fact of its existence. I mean, 10 years ago, I don't think you could have found more than two or three people on the planet who even believed that something like this was even possible. Because the people had worked for such a long time to create money independent of the state. And it just had, it's had so many legal barriers to get going um, and so many sort of inherent problems with it. It just never really worked. And for my own part, I think I started having people write me about Bitcoin in maybe it's 2011, maybe even earlier, maybe 2010. And I was just incredulous because I just didn't believe it was possible. You know, I had misunderstood this 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 claim of uh, the so-called regression theorem, which is that you can't have a new money um, enter into the market unless it had a previous barter existence. And my old friend Mary Rothbard used to take it even further and say that so long as a money is a functional money is currently in use, the network effects of that were going to be always too powerful for a new invention of money to come along. It would be driven out by Gresham's Law or whatever. Um, so therefore, the only option for us was to convert the existing national currency into a kind of a more sound currency and eventually take it away from the government. Which sounds like a nice theory, except that, well, you know, government doesn't want to let go of its money, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a slight problem. So the uh, Bitcoin sort of solved, you know, many, many problems in the world. The economic one, uh, because it, it it created a digital commodity that was was um, artificially scarce in a way that because it lives on a distributed network and it's an open source protocol, everybody could monitor it and you could observe to see whether there's any double spending, which is the word that geeks use for what is really inflation. And so it solved that economic problem, but it also addresses a very profound political problem, which is how are we going to get from here to there? How do we go from a deeply corrupt, inflationarily financed, you know, monetary regime that's manipulated by uh, the government um, 
and the and the power power elite and relies on financial intermediaries that exclude you know four fifths of the world's population from participation. How do we get from that into a, a genuine sound money free market system where we have a non inflationary currency that's genuinely sound and you know nobody had really come up with a good solution for that. The one exception maybe f a Hayek in 1974 talked about the possibility of denationalizing money and he even speculated that banks themselves would create this this money and start issuing it on a trust basis based on their stock portfolios or whatever. Very creative idea. Um, the problem is that under Hayek's method, you ultimately have to trust trust the banks. You have to trust a centralized institution. And there's a central point of failure under all those kind of schemes. Well, Hayek couldn't have imagined open source you know, distributed networks and open source protocols that we have today, where everybody can, you know, monitor it and see it. It doesn't belong to anyone in particular. It belongs to everyone. Yeah. He never could have imagined such a such a system. And in that magic moment, and you know, January January, I think it was the second or third or something like that, two thousand nine, when the Genesis block came uh, uh, came out of the blockchain. You know, offering the first ten Bitcoin or whatever it was, it was kind of a kind of an awesome thing. There weren't too many people that were paying attention at the time, but by ten months later, uh, Bitcoin, uh, which is just basically a numerator for entry and exit to the to the blockchain ledger, uh, the Bitcoin itself took on an actual monetary value. It was only a sixteenth of a penny or something like that, but it was a real hinge of history. This would sort have of been October fifth, two thousand nine. Where the proof of concept was was suddenly out there for the whole world, we can make a private money. It can exist on the internet. It can be exchanged peer to peer without any third party intermediaries, and there can be perfect transparency about the soundness of this currency. And so that that was just an awesome moment. And and since that time, we've just seen. Nothing but uh, kind of growth and you know increasing institutionalization of this amazing invention. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's pretty interesting, and it, it seems like a lot of people um, took their shots at the at it when they could, because um, I know at one point it was like a thousand dollars a Bitcoin, and I think it's it's come down quite a bit. So everyone's like, it's just a bubble, and it's like, well, no, man, it's 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 not. It's it's kind of a natural course. There's going to have its highs and lows. And, um, and I, and I, and, but to me, like what's, what's exciting about it is that, you know, it's just like what you said. I mean, it's, it's, it's a currency that everybody in the world can use and it's not regulated by any government. And I think that's, or any bank. And that's, that's what's, ex what's so exciting. Um, I know in 2010, I was first introduced to Bitcoin and I would thought it was like a scam because I yep. was actually quite. I was I was getting all of my media content because I uh, was on the deep web using this thing called Usenet, and the news boards were getting shut down um, by like uh, the MPAA, and the only one of them they would only accept Bitcoin for membership, so the only way I could find to get Bitcoin was I had to make this phone call for 20 minutes to get a whole Bitcoin, and I'm like man if I would have just sat on there now back then but anyways i thought it i thought it was a scam because i had no idea what it was and i don't think anybody did at the time so it was uh 
Looking back on it, though, you know, it happens. <laughs> but it hadn't even achieved dollar parity at that point in history. I mean, it must have been, you know, 10 cents or 20 cents or something like that, right? Oh, yeah, it wasn't much at all. It was just for me, like, the thing that weirded me out was that I had to make a phone call and sit on it for a while. And then I was going to pay for it on my cell phone bill. And I, and I just remembered, like, the old, like, one nine hundred numbers or something like that. Like it was something. It was some weird thing. It might not have been exactly that, but it was. It was a while ago. And I just remember being weirded out, and I almost did it. And then I was like, "No, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just figure out another way to get my media content." So, um, but it, it's it's interesting. Like what you were saying earlier, we are in this digital age, you know. And you're you you do have a, a technology background, being the um, director of technology for FEE as or FEE as you were saying earlier. And um, it's it's I think it's it's interesting to see like when I when I ever think about like how big of a difference like hackers can make in our society, even in the sense that like recently with the whole um, something that it, it kind of made me realize with the whole when Apple was hacked and all these pics of celebrities being naked were leaked, and then all of a sudden these cell phone carriers actually like had to, these cell phone manufacturers had to up their security, not because they weren't already, because everybody's privacy was being violated, like every everyday people. But now that we mess with like a famous person or something like that, then we all got this treatment to get our, our stuff locked down more. And I think it's it's just interesting too, like just um, just how, how hackers have um, really i mean the only reason why i'm saying that is because you know bitcoin kind of really started on the deep web and um and, and it's it's interesting how how much things on the deep web and the digital world will later on maybe a couple years later really affect the physical world if that makes sense you know i th I, I think you make a really good point and and people should really reflect on it. I mean, we were sort of used to believing that innovations in, in society come about from, from elites at Ivy League universities or big-time government officials or big-time you know, research labs or something in collaboration with you know, establishment power structures and so on. I mean, the digital age has made us rethink all that. Yeah. And and now it turns out that you know the most exciting innovations of our time come come about through these informal networks of of people who um, are just applying their talents and whatever uh, whatever they whatever whatever the way they have. I mean, one of the reasons that Satoshi Nakamoto is anonymous um, is because everybody on that cypherpunk forum that he was using at the time. Used, used uh, you know, a, a handle. It was very conventional. That's just what everybody did. Yeah. Well, even, and, and I think it's, and I haven't, I haven't spent too much more time on the deep web in a while. Um, but it, I just think it's, it's, it's not only that, it's just like it, sometimes it, it kind of makes me think about, uh, you know, our, some of our freedoms don't always come from where you think they come from. Like people think it comes from in a courtroom. But like in reality, like even like just privacy, like the whole, the whole, thing with like the the celebrity thing was that was just a game that these people were playing with each other like they've been trading naked celebrity photos that they hacked off their phones for years and then one guy bought a bunch of them and he just released them on the on like the main interwebs and uh and it's like now we have this privacy in our phones so it's harder for people to hack us but it came from like just people playing some game it came from people just uh does that make sense what I'm saying? Like it doesn't it's it's it was nothing that was necessarily like this 
this uh um and it kind of goes back to like i guess what you were kind of talking about earlier with the beauty of chaos um it, it came from like it came from people just just having fun trading something around and then it was like oh man there's this real problem out there we should fix it like does that make sense what i'm saying or no absolutely it's it's just a matter of fiddling and you know sort of tinkering and being surprised and and also it's crowdsourced i mean great yeah. innovations are really come from sharing uh, very small marginal improvements. Um, and by the way, I think we know this, and you as sort of having some familiarity with hacker culture knows this, that no one person is some sort of genius, that everybody's relying on everybody else. Yeah. And we get that now. But it turns out, I mean, it's really obvious in the digital age that that's true. I mean, that the great man theory of innovation, you know, is 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 a myth in our times. But But it's even true in the past. You look at the history of innovation, and it's always it's always worked this way. One person comes up with a neat idea, and somebody else picks up on it and competes and slightly improves on it, and so on. You talked about Cody Wilson; it was a great example. He invented the three D printed gun, um, but within hours after his CAD files were sent out over a distributed network, there were improvements already. People were we're reiterating it and and coming up with tweaks and improvements. I mean, that's that's the way life proceeds. And what's interesting to me is that our experience in the digital world has shown us um, that that's actually the way it's always been throughout. Yeah. Every innovation is this way. And one of the reasons we are disinclined to understand that or we tend to, tend to overlook that point and tend to focus on great innovators, you know, um, in history is is because of the patent, you know, because yeah. of the state. And the state sort of gives out these patents rewarding particular institutions or individuals with, a, you know, sort of codified that so you are an official innovator, you know, uh, as if, as if uh, you know, as if, as if history just sort of lurches forward in these um, and, and, and big leaps and then stays, you know. But that's not true. It's always a process. And it's one of the things that's wrong with the patent. Actually, the patent, what it does is it takes an existing innovation and freezes it in place and forbids anybody from, from improving on it, from taking that technology and improving on it a little bit at a time. So it actually slows down innovations. That's what, that's what patents uh, ultimately do. Yeah, that makes, that makes 100% um, sense. Uh, I, I 100% ag agree, and I think it's even, even just even people with, with art or, or music um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. Some people like, I, I'm a big fan of DJing and, and hip hop and, and mixes, but like certain kinds. And it's like, uh, you know, one album that was in particular, and, and there's been plenty of other albums like it, but there was one that this guy Danger Mouse did. He, he took a Jay-Z album, the black album, and he mixed it with the Beatles white album. And it was like the, the most downloaded album that year. But because of copyrights and everything else like that, nobody, nobody made any money off of it. And because it, and it, and it was just like, man, if if people could just get over the copyright stuff, I mean, everybody probably could have gotten their royalties and everything else like that. But it, it's, it's you know, it's 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 interesting to think about, like, because I, I think you see a lot in art and and even like when I do, um, when I have art for even my podcast or something that I do. I like to have one artist do something and then have another artist do something else on top of it because I like that that's that kind of that graffiti-esque style because I think it's more creative or you'll see 
like people will naturally complement each other and it's it's a really cool thing to see and i think it's 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 really the the um the kind of the basis of what human innovation actually is and um and it and i think it's 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 interesting that you know just like what you're saying the state really does get in the way of all of that the state really goes in above and beyond to try to make sure that doesn't happen in a lot of ways um I love that you're a, you're a DJ. I, I'm I'm so not I'm not a DJ. I'm not. I'm just a oh. fan of DJs. I'm sorry. Oh, Jeff, okay. Jeffrey, well, sorry. you know about the culture. I've yeah. always wanted to write about it. I, every time I find myself in a sort of a clubby environment where there's a DJ doing the, doing all that cool stuff, and and you know I have the chance to sort of watch them closely or talk to them at breaks and things like that. I mean, you talk about a culture that lives off you know um, mixes and remixes and and piracy and remixes again and. You know, there's a presumption in the DJ culture that that everything is is in the commons and everything's there for you to play with. Uh, you know, I, my my strong impression is that you know most of these clubs and in, in, would be shut down if copyright were seriously in, enforced. I mean, it just yeah. never, and 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 be and our culture would be radically impoverished as as a result. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, everybody likes going to the club, and I don't think. I think a lot of DJs today aren't necessarily good, but yeah, I, I, I had dreams and, and aspirations to be a DJ, Jeffrey, and then I just I settled for podcasting because I started doing it, and I was like, this is really intense. I mean, this takes a lot of... Uh, uh, if I would have really put the time into it, I think I probably could have done well, but I, I, I just kind of... It was one of my interests, so I got really into like the idea and studying the culture and just that part of hip-hop, and then... Um, I just realized that man, I'm I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna be as committed as I need to be to being a DJ, and uh, but yeah, I, I I agree. Like I think that whole, I think there's a lot of hip hop culture even in general. Like I think if you if you look at um, you know, there's one of my favorite groups. Uh, um, they have a lot of issues releasing albums because most of their songs, like they go on tour and they make money, but in most of their songs though are uh, they they've always been these cool kind of mashup style songs i mean it's uh, uh for their beats de la soul and um that's that's the name of the group so i you know i, th I think hip-hop culture there's a lot of of um there's a there's a lot of to me things that represent freedom in that in in hip-hop culture in djing and, and everything else like that um but um to kind of shift gears uh, i uh I kind of got lost there just talking about I got excited to talk about hip hop Jeffrey. No, I think it's so it's <laughs> enormously interesting and 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 you know I mean I don't believe in I don't believe in copyright and and thank goodness it's copyrights very little enforced in that culture and yeah. that's since it's a and and by the way this is also true looking back in musical history because you know um bebop began as a <laughs> look it, it always happens all the time you have a great new innovation and then, uh, then the establishment comes along and shuts it down with intellectual property, and then it, it gets boring and stayed and becomes a sort of a source of pop profiteering and pillaging for a, a tiny group of elites. And then there's a big revolt against it, um, and then and that and that revolt usually is about rejection of copyright and the comments. I mean, this is the ass ass very essence of bebop culture, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was all about they, they never wrote it down. It was filled with tons of improvisation. Um, there was a lot of copying back and forth. You know, so Miles Davis would copy Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker, you know, and Coltrane would borrow. You know, they all borrowed from each other in, in the club realm. And it was considered to be a, a sort of an homage to each other. And that's why it was such a 
a vibrant and radical uh, culture and why they eschewed writing things down because they thought that, well, if you, as long as you don't write things down, um, it can't be copyrighted. Of course, 20 years later, you know, all this sort of radical revolutionary uh, anti-IP music of the 1950s, you know, was entirely written down, codified, sold, and corporatized. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and rock, you know, is a similar situation. So it comes out, you know, in a, in a similar sort of cultural milieu that was rejecting uh, establishing IP and embracing free art and all the rest of it eventually comes, you know, codified and all the artists themselves pillaged and ripped off so the production companies could, could uh, profiteer at the expense of everybody else. And so on it goes. I mean, you can you can trace it all the way back to uh, the origin of uh, ragtime. You know, yeah. it was a, it was a similar way a uh, hundred years ago now. Um, and but, you know, it's fascinating to me to think about what happened to I don't know what you would call it, what what people call classical music, but which I think you might want to call sort of high art music, um, which was vibrant and fascinating and still on the move. You know, th- through all throughout the nineteenth century. You know, through 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 Brahms and Beethoven, and, and um, you know Berlioz and Verdi, and you know everything was everything was awesome until uh, about the 1890s when we got the Berne Convention, where suddenly for the very first time imposed copyright on an international level, and it it, it took a couple of decades, but eventually um, the normal course of music evolution and high art music just came to a screeching halt. I mean, after Stravinsky, you, you had a real slowdown and kind of serious um, iterative evolution of, of high art music. And no surprise, it went into, into a radical decline and became only the province of the elites. You know, so by the time you, you, you get into serialism and pointillism, and high academic, you know, high art, there's not a single person who's interested in what they're doing at all. And I, I think there's a strong case to be made that, that the institution of copyright um, actually destroyed um, that kind of, that sector of our life of music. Yeah, but, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's definitely no Beethovens or anything like that anymore. And it's, or Box and it's, it's interesting to think that, like, I think the closest thing to that music now are scores and movies. Like, and it's not even... Right, you have to have this new technological innovation. I mean, yeah, it's fascinating to me that all the great... <laughs> Some years ago, I went into um, an old art house in Milwaukee um, where they were selling very expensive tickets to a concert that was completely sold out. And I didn't know what I was really getting into because it was an old art house built in, you know, the late 19th century or something like that. It was a, clearly a symphony hall. But everybody's pouring in in, in costume and, and the various get-ups and everything. And they had a live orchestra and, and a big screen on top. And what it was is a, a presentation of a video game. And I'm sorry I don't remember the name of the video game because I'm not much of a gamer. But um, it was video game music being performed live. Oh, it's uh, 8-bit. So it's uh, 8-bit music, I think. It's uh, where they use a, a... where they So they were performing the video game's music? Yep. Okay, I got that confused because there's also that culture where they'll take an old Game Boy and there's musicians that play, like, it's called, like, 8-bit music and they play all the music through a Game Boy and a laptop. Like, the... Uh, I, have you seen that as well? I, at first, I no, thought you were talking no. about 8-bit, but now I realize that you were talking about a... Cla- it was like a... 
so it was like cla- like you know like a symphony playing a video games music kind of deal yeah um i i'm gonna look this up for you see if i can get this exactly right yeah i, I just found my article on the topic um what was the name of the uh, of the music uh so i just don't remember the, the name of the game oh yeah legend of zelda okay it was Zel- okay yeah that makes sense that's all yeah. from old nintendo yeah and and it was a full two hours of music uh, i tell you what yeah, I've been I've been to a lot of symphony concerts in my life. This was absolutely number one, the most exciting. I've never seen an audience more engaged in, in a cultural experience as I as I see. Well, unless you're talking about outdoor rock concerts or something yeah. like that. But but at at a serious symphonic concert hall, you know, with live music, uh, with a full orchestra, I've never seen an audience so riveted and so excited, and so cheering on the performers. Wow, that was it was an awesome experience. Just to see, you know, you you feel like what it must have been like, you know, at a at at a at a Puccini opera, you know, in the eighteen nineties, or maybe at the at the at at at, at you know, I was going to say Brahms Symphony, but nobody ever went to those. Probably a Beethoven Symphony would be more more likely to compare it. You know, it was eighth or ninth symphonies, which were attended by so many people, and so many were so many people were excited. I, th- I just think it's really fascinating that we're recreating that kind of 19th century experience of excitement about art um, in the 21st century, but in a completely different iteration, you know? Yeah. A game music, uh, you know, the sort of interactive digital experience, and, and it's, you know, music that sort of rejects old categories. I mean, it's like nobody knew there was such a thing as gaming music, you know, 50 years ago. It's, this is crazy. And now... So it's it's fascinating to me. We you know we we I think you opened up the interview talking about entrepreneurship. This is a great example of it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. That's that's a uh, that's funny, man. I've actually heard about that too. Um, the Zelda because I wanted to say the Legend of Zelda, but I, I've heard of like I heard that they were doing a symphony of it. That that's that's pretty awesome. That it was just like that alive. Was it? So was the audience all pretty much like kind of did they were they more younger people that had played Zelda and they were just really into it or was yeah it just, yeah and they're all dressing up as Zelda characters <laughs> they're dressed up as yeah. Link and that's and, awesome yeah yeah and and they pay a lot of money to be there right so these tickets yeah. were, were you know I don't know thirty to a hundred to hundred fifty two hundred dollars two hundred fifty dollars you know depending on where you where you sat and yeah. and people and it was absolutely sold out. It's kind of like the uh, um, the the rise of geek culture. I think. I think it's yeah. it's uh, because even like uh, I'd like to dress like a, a middle schooler, so I always wear like these these graphic tees. I go to this website called Ripped Apparel, and it's always this mashup of stuff that either I like, whether it be like a cartoon or a video game, or or just it's just like this cool mashup. They'll take like a one it's just they'll they'll do different things and um it's it's this great site and it's they'll have um basically they'll take a few artists and they'll take like a an image that they created and they'll put it on like a t-shirt or a hooded sweatshirt and they only sell it for a day and half of the profits go to the artist mm-hmm. and then then it goes somewhere else and it's and it's and and that's like kind of an exciting thing for me because it it, it bypasses a lot of copyright stuff because i know a lot of these t-shirts would um uh, I mean, you couldn't sell it in the store because, you know, 
everybody would want to have their their piece of it but like for some reason there's and sometimes these these shirts get shut down but i think that's it's just so incredibly creative and i like i really am a big fan of you know mashup art so you you know and to me like a mashup art would be let's play you know legend of zelda music on, through a symphony or you know there's there's just so many different cool things and i think um I think that's, you know, I think for art and I, I just think with, with just a, a expression in general, I think, um, you know, I, I think the, and it's funny because we originally talked about anarchism, but we, we, we like, it, it, it really does branch into art. It branches into, you know, how copyright and things really do put a stranglehold on people's creativity. And, um, or, and it's, uh, and, and I think, you know, it, it's interesting to think about. I feel like I'm talking in circles now because it's all kind of hit me. But uh, but um, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, just to think about. Uh, I didn't. Well, here's a, here's a great example. I mean, I, I one of the things, that, the challenges I think we all have to undertake as sort of human beings trying to live, you know, live good lives and understand the world around us, is that we have to get better at sort of um, expecting to be surprised by things we don't anticipate. You yeah. know, that's the last five years should have taught us, you know, nobody expected Bitcoin, nobody expected the advent of the app economy, which was just this gigantic um, uh, sort of sphere in, in the cloud that is serving us all every day that nobody created on the zone. It's just sort of gradually emerged and new kind of art forms. Uh, you know, the, the fact that Legend of Zelda is being played in the old symphony houses and, and actually providing a source of revenue. I mean, you know, there's so many things, 3D printing, nobody expected it. I mean, a year ago, nobody expected that the New York taxi medallion would be worth approximately zero, yeah. you know, from a million dollars to zero in, in, in less than 18 months. You know, the world's, the world's changing very dramatically. And, you know, people get, who despair about it and, and whine about it or want to regulate it, you know, or want to have the next politician come along to control it. You know, these are just people who lack imagination, yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. Um, what is so? What are your thoughts on the share economy? And I know, um, you know, I'm a big fan of it. I, 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 I mean, I think micro entrepreneurship is a really good term for it. I think it's it's for me, it, it gives people a great part time business, and I think uh, I think that's something that people need because it kind of provides a little light at the end of the tunnel. Um, oh, I love I love talking to to Uber drivers anytime I'm in an Uber. Yeah. I just I had a funny experience this last week because I had flown into Atlanta and I pulled up my Uber app and they said, oh, of course, you can't take Uber from the airport, you know, it's not allowed. But I pressed the button anyway and, the guy, <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and I immediately, I pressed the button, called him, he answered it, I immediately called him. That's what you do when you're at an airport that doesn't allow them. You give him a call and say, hey, listen, I'm over here at S5, would you like me to meet you downstairs or a different place or whatever? You, you need to assure them that you're not running a sting operation so they can assess you. And uh, the guy said, oh, no, the fact that you call me is great. Just your S5, I'm going to drive up, and uh, you hop in the car, and, and uh, we'll be off. And he said, um, and so I got in the car with him. I love to talk to this guy. I think the guy's from Nigeria or something. And he, he does very, very well and uh, for himself. He, he loves his job. He works very hard to, um, you know, to please his customers. And I, I love hearing about these guys and their lives and sort of what they do and, and their attitudes on things. It's fascinating. But I, I asked him, I said, now, when I called you, how did you know for sure that I wasn't 
running a sting because they either can be very expensive. You try to pick up, if Uber tries to pick somebody up from an airport that doesn't allow them. And he said, oh, I knew immediately because your user rating was 4.9. Yeah. And, and he said all, this, all the guys who are attempting to run stings, they always get new accounts and, they, and you start with a 5.0. So the fact that you're 4.9 signaled to me that you're, you know, you're a real, real uh, Uber user. So I, anyway, I just pass it on to you because I think it's that's kind of a fascinating point, you know? Yeah, absolutely. They're looking for every cue, and you know, it's so funny just to see these guys outsmart, you know, the regulators like that. It's it's really extraordinary. But that's always going to happen. I feel like, um, you know, whenever you put up a rule, people are going to find a way around it. I think that's. I think that's naturally it, especially if you're trying to inhibit the market from naturally occurring. It's not, you can't stop it. That's why there's always a black market. And I think even, even whether it be, you know, picking up an Uber driver or, sorry, my cat just started meowing right near my microphone there. Um, or, uh, or, uh, our cat got me out of my train of thought. Um, I, I just think that's kind of a classic example of it, though. And I think it's I think it's interesting that the state of California is trying to um, make Uber have part turn all of their drivers into employees. I think that's that's a fascinating thing. And I I wonder how that's going to affect, you know, insurance agents with 1099s and everything else like that. Um, It'll shut down the, the if if they actually manage to do this, especially on a federal level or a centralized level, it will shut down the. The P2P economy, or at least drive it underground. It's it's a tragic move. I mean, it just blows apart the whole economic model. You can add, you know, for every every contractor that that a company pays, you can probably, if they become an employee, you can probably add costs between twenty and thirty five percent per employee, and that just that just blows them up. It leads to mass unemployment and stops innovation. You know, it's just terrible. Yeah, and I yeah. think I think too something that's powerful about the peer to peer economy is m most people just do it part time. I mean, most people have that. I mean, look, I just use this to pay for my car payment, or I, 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 ha I rent out my apartment, you know, as much as I can just to pay my rent or pay my mortgage. And I think it's, um, uh, you know, I, I think giving people that freedom, I think, is important. And I think that's what's great about it. I've, I've never had a bad Airbnb experience. I had, I had one Uber driver that abandoned me somewhere, and I think it was just because of a lack of communication skills. Um, he, uh, I just had to go in real quick and do something, and he gave me a thumbs up, and I thought, uh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, yeah, thank you. And then he, and then I came back outside, and he was gone, and I was like, man, I was gonna have you run me a few places, but all <laughs> right, I, I guess I'll just give my business to someone else. <laughs> so I, that was my only bad experience with Uber. I mean, I've never had, um, I've never really had a rude driver. I think I've had some drivers that drive way too slow. But it's mainly what I've noticed is just because they have, you know, they just want to, you know, they're trying to get a good rating and they don't know if I'm going to think that they are a crazy driver or something like that. And I, I think, you know, one thing I, I, I started doing was saying, Hey, you know, I'm an aggressive driver, go ahead and drive aggressive or, or just, you know, I get it. It's rush hour, you know, do what you got to do. Just get me here as, as quick as possible. Don't be too dangerous, but I, I take chances. So I, you know, I, I think, um, I think it's it's just all about communication. I think that's the beautiful thing too, is you're relying on strangers, and and it forces you to communicate with people that you would never communicate with. And it's about reputation. Your reputation yeah. cares. And that, yeah. That's an awesome thing. And that's that's just a primary 
value in the in the peer to peer age. You know, it's 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 um, you know if you if you meet your your commitments and you are doing what you say you're going to do, and you behave well and you're civil towards other people, you're going to be trusted by others. Absolutely. Well, I, I tell you what, Jeff, I don't know. I, I, I think I only asked you to do an hour. Um, I don't know if you want to keep talking. I can talk for uh, I can talk for a little bit longer if, if you're down to. But if you know, if we want to kind of. Unfortunately, I, I do have a, I'm, I, I figured you did. Yeah. For Leslie Fair books, too, if you can believe it. <laughs> and, and I'm writing uh, an introduction to to a, a new book. Uh, it's not a new book. It's a it's an old book by Xenophon on from from fourth century BC on on economics and politics, and I promised I would get it in before midnight tonight. So. <laughs> well, I will I will let you go. I'd love that. Uh, hopefully, I can have you on again for the future, Jeff. It was a, it was an awesome time talking to you. So if if people want to get a hold of you, um, I mean, obviously, you know, I if people need to follow you on Twitter. Um, I think, uh, and that's, I know I follow you. I just got to look up Jeffrey a Tucker. And then I'm on, uh, then I think I do Jeffrey Tucker.me is my sort of social, I accumulate my social at that little site. And, and then I write a lot for fee.org where I sort of build their work on building their property. And a lot of my political writings appear at my own company, liberty.me. Yeah. And, uh, liberty.me is where I found a lot. And I, I wanted to talk about um, the elections and everything else like that, but I'm actually glad <laughs> that we uh, we talked about everything. We didn't even bring it up. Else. That's kind of a relief, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's something that's fun to talk about, but it, you know, sometimes it's more of a victory when you don't talk about it. I I totally agree with you. We'll have plenty of time. <laughs> well, Jeff, thank you so much. Um, everybody, go follow Jeff on Twitter. Um, check out all of his work. Um, JoinLiberty.me and uh get on his mailing list read his work uh jeff thanks again everybody thanks for listening please go to itunes rate review and subscribe for the sample hour um and uh and yeah appreciate you guys and i'll come and bring you a new episode soon Thank you.